Since 1984, the Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. No matter the medium, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker would want it seen, in state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film. This is the Criterion Connection, where we journey through those films together. By connecting them to each other through thematic, cast, and crew members, or any other various elements. Welcome back to the Criterion Connection, a podcast where two film lovers explore the Criterion Collection by connecting these iconic films to each other through the greater tapestry of cinema. Every week, we discuss a film that is connected in some way to the film we watched the previous week. The only caveat, the film must be a part of the Criterion Collection. We'll also highlight new additions to the collection, great hidden gems on the Criterion channel, and more. My name is Ian, and with me, as always, is my very lovely co-host, Mackenzie. Hey, Mackenzie, how you doing? (laughs) Hello, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. And this week on the Criterion Connection, we are discussing Spy Number 780, directed by Michael Haneke, Code Unknown. But Mackenzie, before we get into that, I know you haven't been able to do a lot this week <laughs> as far as uh, watching movies, but tell me, what were you able to take in? You want to talk about this new Peter Pan remake or something else? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, the Peter Pan remake is just fine. There's like, I did watch the new <laughs> Disney Plus Peter Pan. There's some interesting ideas. Talked about it a bit on ADP. I felt like it's still like, it brought some new things to the table that were interesting and it left other things from other versions, including the source material that I felt shouldn't have been left out. Like it was weird. It was a weird mixture of like, okay, this is a cool idea, but what about these other things that are like also interesting that you got rid of? Um, But I sort of am like, you know, if this gives David Lowry the paycheck, he needs to make another film like the green Knight. I'm okay with that because I love the green Knight. Um. And yeah, and then of course I watched Shrek. We're talking about it on NADP this morning as well. I watched mm-hmm. watched good old Shrek. One step closer to watching Shrek 2, the best movie ever. I love that movie so much. <laughs> um, but I do want to talk about a Criterion-related film that I did check out today. And I want to say what inspired me to do this was uh, in the Discord, Protolexis, one of the co-hosts of 70mm, uh, dropped a bomb on the Discord with a five-star review of The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which is in the Criterion Collection. Mm-hmm. It's filmed by The Archers and uh, Paul and Pressburger, yes. if you will. Um, and I recently blind bought the Blu-ray of A Matter of Life and Death, which is also in the Criterion Collection, spine number 939. And I was like... Am I? Am I putting this on today? <laughs> uh, and yeah, I was just kind of doing some busy work at my job. So I thought, yeah, I'll just put on this Powell and Pressburger. And much like most Powell and Pressburgers, you just immediately get sucked into the beauty of their movies. Like, God, they just don't miss. They really don't miss. The other I've seen, I know where I'm going, which I think is fun. It's not like a Technicolor Marvel, like some of their other films that are bigger than that. But I know where I'm going, which I also think is in the collection. Um, it's still a really fun movie. It's kind of like an Irish fairy tale love story thing. But I've 
obviously seen the red shoes, which hopefully we will do one day. That was in my top 10, I believe, because it is, mm-hmm. I just think one of the greatest movies ever made. And uh, this, this is close. I still think the red shoes is the best. I don't know how any movie they've made will top the red shoes for me. Um, but this was really, a, I mean, it was beautiful. It had those technicolor, that technicolor cinematography mixed with also really gorgeous black and white cinematography. They play with color a lot in this film. I kind of knew the basis of it was like a guy accidentally doesn't die. And so angels need to come reclaim him. That was like the basic story that I knew it was about, but it actually went to places I totally didn't expect it to go. It's sort of, it's presenting this magical story to you of these angels and this man you know, fighting for his life so that he can stay on this earth and be with the woman he loves. But it's also bringing in this sort of questioning of reality and like, are, is the fantastical elements we are seeing, are they actually real? Are they in his head? And, and the movie doesn't answer those questions for you. And so it went to all these kind of metaphysical sort of metaphorical, fantastical places that I just totally didn't expect. And then the ending gets into like, america britain relations during world war ii and you're like how did we get here and there's a whole scene where they basically put britain on trial for how colonialist britain has been to every country in the world and it is like truly bonkers how hard they go and i was like what movie am i watching uh i gave it five stars i my review was the epitome of life affirming right it makes you think about Mm -hmm your own life and if you had to fight for your own love and your own right to exist which many of us do every day what would you say to the people who are you know making those decisions and um it's also just like beautiful the guy who plays the i apologize i don't know his name he plays the conductor the young conductor um in the red shoes he plays this like foppy French angel dude in this movie. Uh, and it was such a brilliant performance, completely different than his red shoes performance in a way that I loved. So he's like wearing lipstick and he's been like, he's an angel. So he's a person who's died. And his whole thing is that he's been beheaded. So he wears a big scarf and he's always like, I had a little surgery myself. Oh, it's, you know, but he's saying it in this like very French accent. Like it's, it was really fun. It was really fun. It was really wild. Uh, I cannot wait till we do a Powell and Pressburger on the show. Um, yeah, they're just great. They're the best. I love them. I loved the movie. Not as good as the red shoes, but it's like basically right beneath it. Um, but that's kind of what I watch. I'm hoping I watch some more movies soon. I gotta get. I've been playing so much video games. I'm a video. I'm a gamer boy. I've been playing video games in all my free time <laughs> instead of watching movies. Yeah, uh, but we were talking about this before we pressed the record button. No movies for you this week was five movies. That's and true. Even, that's yeah, true. And when I say no movies, I probably mean five or seven movies myself. So <laughs> no movies means something very different to people like you and I and probably our listener well speaking of the movies you watched this week you watched a lot of amazing movies this week i would love to hear about some of them i did i did uh amongst some of the winners we got my first viewing of barry Lyndon, uh coming in at number three in my kubrick rankings so far <gasps> got two more to go but yeah barry Lyndon loved it a lot um what are your another... number one and two kubricks i'm curious good question um number one kubrick Let's let's do this in reverse. So number okay. three, Barry Lyndon. Number two, The Shining. Okay. My queen, Shelley Duvall. I love her so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. think about this every day. Who is my favorite actor slash actress? 
it's definitely Shelly Duvall. I, nine, nine times out of 10, I come down on Shelly Duvall. Um, and then number one is uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Ooh, yeah. I've still not seen that one. I am a huge fan of Eyes Wide Shut. I think it's a perfect movie. I think it's super fun. Uh, it is the, this is my unconventional Christmas movie movie for me. Whereas most mm-hmm. people have Die Hard, I have Eyes Wide Shut. Ugh, Batman Returns is my unconventional Christmas That's movie. A yeah. very good choice and probably my second, my runner up <laughs> to uh, Eyes Wide Shut. So yeah, I watched Barry Lyndon. I also checked out um, The Girls, like I said I would, and Yay! can confirm it is a banger. Uh, May Zerling continues to not miss uh, this. She just is like so experimental and creative in the way that she makes films. I just found all the choices that she was making incredibly interesting and her cast just bb anderson harriet anderson ugh, all bb for bb in that movie i literally put my review like is she my favorite actress is bb i gotta inspect i gotta investigate this if bb anderson is if she might be one of them at least because she's just so magnetic all she has to do is just breathe on screen and she's just like hypnotizing i cannot believe R- really hard to narrow down all the amazing actresses that you and I talk about and that mm-hmm. exist in the world to just one. But yeah, no, she's amongst a uh, select few of truly transcendent performers. Yes, um, yes, 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 yes. Love B.B. Anderson. And then also another one of your favorites. I also checked out But I'm a Cheerleader. Yeah, uh, baby. And we were talking it before we started recording, but I loved this. It was probably the most fun movie I've watched in recent memory. Um that's kind of what I wrote down about it. I was like, this is just the most fun thing I've watched as of late. Uh, my fiance, Frankie watched it with me. She had a great time with it. We were just astounded at the bonkers cameos in this movie though. Um, you had a Michelle Williams cameo in the first 15 minutes, uh, just <laughs> playing a friend from school. And then as you and I have talked about a couple times at this point, uh, off mic, a truly wild and exhilaratingly like, hot julie delby cameo <laughs> yes um, she's credited as lipstick lesbian which makes me laugh so hard that that's her <laughs> character name uh, yeah so yeah i just watched so many good things um i'm not going to talk about it a lot because i've mentioned a couple things at this point but i do just want to highly recommend and really push everybody who listens to the show to go check out jane campion's in the cut from mm. 2003 it is on the criterion channel right now and it is a part of their program starring jennifer jason lee but it very well could also be um in their program from last month erotic thrillers um because it is an erotic thriller in its own right and i think it's probably the best erotic thriller that i've seen at least in recent memory it has the most steamy and sensual sex scene I've ever seen between Mark Ruffalo and Meg Ryan. It's something completely different from Meg Ryan. And it was widely panned at the time of release because of that. And also because it was a swerve for Jane Campion Uh, in terms of, you know, what's going on thematically. It's kind of a neo-noir. It's kind of, you know, David Fincher's Um, Mm -hmm, mm 70. It's, yeah, it's just, it's very dark. It's very, you know, slimy and dirty. Um, But, you know, I'll just say this. It is incredibly confounding, but it is incredibly satisfying at the end of it. And it's, it features an, an amazing performance by Meg Ryan at the very end of her career. 
um, unfortunately, and a career best from Mark Ruffalo at basically the beginning of his film career. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so can't recommend it enough. It's on the Criterion channel right now. If you have a subscription, highly recommend it. And if not, uh, I just found out browsing uh, one of my favorite DVD stores' website that it's getting a 20th anniversary Blu-ray release, and it's only going to cost like eight bucks. Real? Um, what? Yeah, it's like crazy cheap. This movie is just like, even though it's been reclaimed in certain communities, like uh, female cinema obsessives and the queer community has kind of reclaimed this film, uh, it's being released for the first time ever on like a newly restored Blu-ray disc and it's like going to cost eight or 10 bucks. It's crazy. Excuse me? Yeah. So if you don't have the Criterion channel subscription is what I'm saying, you should go out and buy this movie because it's that worth it. Oh my gosh, that's wild. Yeah, I saw that. I also saw that. Oh wow, there's an uncut director's edition that's, I think that's coming the one I'm out. With, about. Is it Mill Creek? Is that what you're saying that for? Maybe. Maybe. They um letterboxed. Not to talk about letterboxed all the time. They posted it in their mm. shelf life email that I love getting because um, I'm trying to be more of a collector and and also venture outside to other you know boutique labels outside of Criterion, and Me I enjoy seeing. Too. Um, what they and they talked about this showgirl's vinegar syndrome that I mm. am waiting for the right paycheck to get because that boy is expensive, but I will get it because mm-hmm. I really, really want that that 4K. But um, yeah. yeah, they posted about this director's edition of In the Cut in their most recent shelf life too. You know, Mackenzie, unless you have anything further to say about Blu-rays or what you watched this week, I think it's time we start talking about Code Unknown from Michael Henneke. Let's get into it. All right. Well, you go ahead and bring us in to the world what are the world's most influential and provocative filmmakers the oscar-winning austrian director michael haneke diagnoses the social maladies of contemporary europe with devastating precision and artistry his drama code unknown The first of his many films made in France may be his most inspired work. Composed entirely of brilliantly shot single-take vignettes focusing on characters connected to one seemingly minor incident on a Paris street, Haneke's film, with outstanding international cast headlined by Juliette Binoche, is a revelatory examination of racial inequality and the failure of communication in an increasingly diverse modern landscape. In Code Unknown. remember on our episode last week that yes. you know i read the letterbox log line and you looked at code unknown and who you follow on letterbox and who had seen it and you read our friend pat healy's review and absolutely no shade to pat um i see what they're saying but i went in with a very different expectations based on that review in mm. which they said you know Austria's most famous filmmaker gave us, uh, uh, what do you say? European Pulp Fiction or French Pulp Fiction and it slaps. And spoiler alert for me, Code Unknown does in many ways slap. Uh, But I didn't really, uh, you know, feel the visceral excitement of Pulp Fiction that, you know, a 10 year old gets when they see it for the first time and they're a budding cinephile. That being said, 
I also didn't really go in knowing anything else about the film. The only knowledge I had about Code Unknown before going in was the letterbox description. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't read the Criterion description, um, and I had only seen The Piano Teacher. That was my only familiarity with Hanake, Mackenzie. Have I know you haven't seen The Piano Teacher. Have you seen anything by Hanake or like have any exposure to him? No, I um I am aware of him as a director. There's like films that I'm aware of that I'm like, I don't know if I want to watch you. <laughs> and mm. that's why I'm aware of them. And the piano teacher is one of those films that I've heard a lot about. Um you know, I talk about about my job that I do some advertising for a film forum in New York City. And they did a huge like Isabel Huppert thing recently and i was doing a ton of ads about the piano teacher and reading all about it and was like what is this movie about Mm. and uh similarly i think i randomly on twitter saw someone talking about haneke about how he shot for shot remade his own film funny games uh for the u.s like he had obviously the the original version as well as he made he remade his own movie and i was like that's so strange and i was reading a lot about that film and reading the synopsis of that and being like that doesn't necessarily seem like something i want to watch right now but like cool that it that it exists i suppose um and so like i'm aware of his films and the things that i guess i was actually um i've never seen pulp fiction so i wasn't even sure how to really read into that review in terms of how it would be here but i guess what i was bringing to this film was i was expecting the subject matter to be very intense based on what i've read about piano teacher and funny games both of which seem to have kind of intense subject matter not that this isn't but this was like much more chill than I was expecting. (laughs) Like I was expecting, Mm -hmm. um, I was expecting, but there's still some very uncomfortable moments some very visceral moments in this film that I think we'll definitely touch on. Um, but yeah, I've never seen another Haneke. I've only read about him. I think this was a good place to dive in because I think the other films are a little intimidating to me. Um, but again, I, 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 not to spoil it. I also really, really enjoyed this movie. So I was like, this is, I think a good place to dive in because I yeah. really dug this. I loved the style. I loved the performances. Uh, and I see exactly what he was trying to say and I appreciate how he was saying it. Yeah. I, I think he even admitted in something I'm not sure if you ended up watching, but I recommended you watch it. There's an interview with him on the Criterion channel Mm -hmm. in which he does talk about how he himself thinks this is probably his most accessible film. Yeah. Um, And just so that comes across clearly, I didn't just say successful. I said accessible, like easy to access. Like, yeah, it was not as visceral as I was expecting. And it's kind of what I was trying to say up front. And I completely agree with you. Like, just hearing or reading about the piano teacher or funny games is daunting enough in its own right. And if that weren't enough in itself, I actually went out and watched funny games yesterday kind of in preparation. And I liked it a lot. Um, Hanukkah just has a very unique style of filmmaking. Um, Like he's always playing, it seems with the form of Mm -hmm. like narrative filmmaking And in this, you know, what I really found fascinating was how he almost gets in uh, early and out early in some of these vignettes. And then Mm -hmm. he gets in late and out late in others. Um, He doesn't actually adhere to the, you know, the age old cliche of like tight storytelling, which is, you know, get in late, get out early. Um, It was very clear that like you're supposed to get just snippets of everybody's lives in this and it's not a very big cast of characters Mm -hmm. um i really glommed on to juliette binoche's 
uh, line as well as the uh, young uh, black Frenchman um, yes. in the film. Those are the two that I really, you know, kind of found to be the most intriguing. I was wondering, like, for you, was it the same or like, are there others that you like found more interesting or? Yeah, I I agree. I think that I mean Benoche's I've never seen her in anything before, uh, my truth, and she was <laughs> so amazing in this. Like from the jump, I'm immediately like hypnotized by her. She has that BB Anderson quality, if you will, where mm. the second she enters the screen, you just can't take your eyes off her. And she was I found her so capable of conveying such a phenomenal range of emotions with such like with just such ease and such it's just she's i'm not saying something that hasn't been said before this is a very talented woman uh and it's it's very um i'm glad i finally watched a film with her and i want to check out more of her work because this was really really like mind-blowing performance for me um so i agree i think those are the two i definitely glommed on to i think passively maybe we'll get into it the little girl from the beginning was also someone who was on my mind a lot and she kind of connects to benosha's character a bit obviously mm -hmm. i th i think with the implication of her being maybe yeah. the child who dies um yeah. but yeah i mean like you know you're, you're saying these vignettes right these like little snippets we get of people's lives oh i also loved um the young man's mother her sequences of her kind of expressing these this pain and fear of racial profiling to the father mm -hmm. after the arrest from that initial sequence right where julia pinocha's boyfriend's little brother i believe mm -hmm. uh yeah, yeah. john john disrespects a unhoused woman and the other young man tries to get him to apologize and it becomes an altercation that becomes mm -hmm. uh, a very bad situation pretty pretty quickly but i i don't know like i like the concept of hyperlink films and that i'm bringing that up now because that's going to connect to what i'm choosing to connect to this film mm -hmm. and i feel like i was reading i was reading a really interesting article that was talking about code unknown about how hyperlink films had this huge moment in the late 90s. I think Pulp Fiction might be as why that reference is there, right? Because it's also kind of a hyperlink film in a sense. Magnolia, mm -hmm. um, you know, like a lot of other films from this era were very like leaning into the hyperlink thing. And I think that they're, I think it's such an interesting way of storytelling because it sort of, this is just like five people maybe and like seeing how just through small moments their lives intersect so much is really astounding and i think it makes the viewer think back to all the people that they interact with on a daily basis or walk by and sometimes i fall into like an existential trap where i'm just like wow every person i pass on the street or i'm sitting on the bus with has families and friends and those families and friends have even more family and even more friends and we all branch out into this huge web of interconnectivity and i think that like so often because it would drive us crazy we don't think about other people that much mm -hmm. and i think that especially in the age of the internet we don't we only have these surface level understandings of other human beings and it has led to such a lack of empathy for humankind and i think i see that most illustrated with Julia Binoche and the young black man, right? Because she just sees him as this guy who attacked her boyfriend's little brother. And like, mm -hmm. she points him out in the restaurant and he's just there having a date. And she doesn't know that he has like a family who is also struggling and a deaf little sister who the assumption is maybe her, you know, fellow student is murdered by her parents. And like, I don't know like this I think that this film because of the themes of just like our inability to communicate and connect with each other the hyperlink format works beautifully here because 
I don't know, as the viewer, we are gathering empathy for these characters because we are seeing all the lives and all the the extra tethers that kind of come out of all these human beings, but they're unwilling to see that for each other. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's a very, it's a very, it's a movie about the lack of empathy, but also I think it builds empathy in the viewer in a way that is so fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, I'm really happy that you brought up the hyperlink cinema. I know it's going to connect later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 I think that the Pulp Fiction comparison is apt in certain regards, but I would have almost compared it to another hyperlink film by one of my favorite filmmakers and listener everywhere spoilers for an over 20 year old movie Magnolia Mm -hmm. at this point. Um, I was finding myself thinking about Magnolia a lot because Magnolia is about the effects that generational trauma has um, on people. And so it's over the course of many generations and like people doing the wrong things and feeling guilty and feeling regret culminating in this biblical, um, you know, reigning of a certain thing. You've seen Magnolia. I have, but I didn't know about that before I saw it. So it was a surprise okay. still. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I spoiled, I spoiled it and I didn't even really say exactly what happens, but, uh, I'm alluding to, you know, a big climactic event at the end of a film, which involves numerous characters connected by, you know, itty bitty links. And, I almost saw Code Unknown as like a flip of that um, because everybody, uh, the big climactic thing, which is again, not even like something that's supernatural. It's not something that couldn't actually happen in real life. Happens at the beginning of Code Unknown. It's this altercation that you're talking about mm-hmm. um, between the young black man. And I feel so bad for just calling the actors by um, their characters. Their names or the, or, yeah. uh, well, I, I feel like I barely got any of the characters' names. That's the thing is I was I was feeling for a lot of these characters and relating to them and caring for them, but I like could not tell you a character yeah. name if you asked me to. His name is Amadou. Um, Amadou. So this confrontation between Amadou and the houseless Romanian immigrant um, that, you know, basically involves everybody except for George um, and his father. Those are like really the only two characters that are not directly involved in this incident Amadou's mother is involved is central in the story and she connects through him and I guess in that way George and his father connect through Julia Benoche's character Anne um but it was just really interesting to me that like the connective tissue like is what kicks off the film is like this event Mm -hmm. this altercation in which the lines of communication are never there or they're broken down as you kind of are talking about in like, you know, Anne is just, Anne being Julia Benoche's character just sees this young black man, maybe has some prejudices in her that yeah lead her to make the wrong decision. She also doesn't have the bigger picture. She doesn't know what Jean, her would be nephew did to this, you know, poor woman begging on the street so she can send all the money back home to um, Kosovo, as I believe where, um, she's coming from and that uh, you know it's it's you know Hanukkah makes films that are so uh boggled down in minutia and this film is a great example of that because like you have to pay so close attention um because it's the tiniest things that have almost like a butterfly effect very far-reaching consequences like you make a simple decision to leave your father's farm as Jean does in the film. And it has far reaching consequences on your brother, your father, your brother's girlfriend, 
um, possibly people that your brother's girlfriend are connected to. Like, it's not like a time travel movie though, where it's like you go back in time and you stop your mother from having you. And so, you know, the, the world is plunged into chaos 40 years later. It's not that, but I think he's just so concerned with like, yeah, little itty bitty decisions do have far reaching consequences. And those consequences may not be world altering for the greater socio-political atmosphere, but they are world altering for individuals. Yeah. I mean, it makes you think about how much impact you have on people's lives. Even when you don't intend to have an impact on someone's life or, or, you know, yeah, it's just like, I don't even know. It's just, I think that's, yeah, that's the whole crux of hyperlink films, I think is really extrapolating the way more profound effect that we realize that we have on other human beings. And, and yeah, the, the, how full the lives are of the people we almost never bat an eye to because the, especially I think of the Romanian immigrant, no one wants to think twice of her. They want to ignore her. They want to use her as this tool of conflict. And she has this whole story that like really none of them know. And they never will know of, of the struggles she's dealing with, with uh, being an immigrant and trying to collect money for her family and trying to find a better life. And like, none of them will ever know that because they'll never ask, you know what I mean? And I think it kind of reminds me of Vagabond in that way, right? Of this invisible person, this person we want to ignore because we have certain prejudices against the way they live their lives. Um, so that that whole arc reminded me a lot of Vagabond, actually, not mm-hmm. to connect it to another film we've discussed. But yeah, that was really fascinating to me. And like, and I guess I want to bring it up because it was on the uh, synopsis. And I, and also I watched this, the kind of pre-introduction of the film by Haneke, which I think was really helpful and interesting to tee up the film and the themes of it, but this idea of communication and, and it seems like that's what he's most interested in is how we, we just don't communicate with each other. <laughs> like it. And I think that there's so many different types of communication in terms of like couples, you know, who are in two different spots in their lives, not being able to communicate, um, you know, obviously people from different walks of life, a young white French boy and a young black French man and how they, they don't understand each other. They don't know how to keep, like, there's all these various scenes that even the, ch- the deaf children in the opening, this little girl who I definitely read as the little kid who dies. She's mm-hmm. clearly evoking a visceral fear. She's trying to tell them about the abuse she's suffering at home, albeit through this game, and none of them understand her. I mean, that he's setting it up in that initial scene right there of this idea of communication. And for me, the most visceral scene, I think, does connect to this, and it's that scene on the train with the the young man who is harassing Anne, Julia Binoche's character. Um, like as a woman not to pull that guard Mm. god existing Mm. as a woman is so bad sometimes and this is just like such a this scene was very viscerally upsetting to me to watch because i've seen situations like that i've been in situations like that and it is so it ties back to that initial scene too because we we see the two boys fighting over this woman and like everyone's just staring at them. No one's even offering to try and understand what they're fighting about. No one tries to break it up. No one tries to say anything. They just stare. And they do that with Julia Binoche as well. She's being actively harassed and spit on by this man. And only one person finally stands up after, after it's been minutes of her being harassed. Like it was just like, I don't know. It's just this, 
we just, we put on blinders in the world to other human beings. And I know I'm guilty of this. I talked about it in Vagabond. We put up these blinders and I do think it just sucks the empathy out of us as human beings because I don't know, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but that was the thing that definitely affected me the most was about this, like that's still tied into that idea of communication and, and the way we don't, we don't help each other as human beings. Yeah. We just don't, not in the way we should, you know, I think he's really trying to examine mm-hmm. the human condition through a lot of different themes and that I feel like I've totally lost the thought and the, and the plot. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that scene is just like, I was like, yeah, that is what it's like to be a woman. And you have to be, try to be quiet because if you say something, you could provoke violence. And if you don't say something, you still provoke violence and you have to choose the lesser of two evils. And God, yeah, it's just a very viscerally. It was a I think you're getting yeah. at a couple of really interesting things. I mean, I do think that the young young deaf girl at the beginning playing the charades is absolutely unfortunately. I definitely think she's the young girl whose funeral Anne is attending later in the film. And um, who we hear screaming, sadly. who Anne yeah. that's, ignores. To me, that's the most visceral scene yes. in the film. Um, not being a woman. Uh, not, not being a woman. Um, <laughs> that's all right. No, but... Yeah, that sequence where Anna's ironing her clothing and just hears the screaming and what sounds like beatings. Um, I find that to be the most troubling scene. And yeah, it's it's always about communication in this. Um, you know, very, very pointedly at the very beginning when the deaf children are playing charades and nobody can understand what she's signing or, you know, acting out, um, she is unable to communicate the horror that she is enduring on a constant daily basis. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And, and there's, there's numerous points where it's very opaque that the film is about communication, but I think that the sequence that you're talking about with Anne on the subway or the Metro, um, in which she's being harassed by these young men, um, is pointedly about communication. Cause like, and can't communicate for fear of, as you say, provoking violence. But even when she doesn't communicate, she does provoke violence. And also how nobody ever stands up for her in that moment until the very end. And this isn't an original thought of mine, but I find it very interesting. Hanake states that it's not even out of the goodness of that man's heart that he uh, speaks up yeah. and stands up for Anne. It's because that he sees a young man of his ethnic origin he sees somebody who is arab as he is arab and basically has to reclaim the pride that this young man is um forsaking uh his entire ethnicity and so it's really fascinating yeah yeah it's it's really fascinating because it's not that the man doesn't know what those young men are doing is wrong but when he finally does stand up to them trip him as he's trying to run out of the subway after spitting in Anne's face that very visceral moment you allude to yeah I could not believe um he says to him you know you old man you jerk uh and the old man says to him who's the jerk and he like takes his son he takes his glasses off as yeah he's <laughs> prepping for a punch um and Hanake states like I want I wanted to like show the lack of communication in an instance of like public provocation but also show that like the only time in which somebody does do anything is when they take a personal um stake in it. interest in it like there's a there's a there's a stake that that older arab man has but yeah no i i find that scene very uh visceral as you do and just 
incredibly, you know, I've used this word a couple times, but pointed as to like what Hanukkah is trying to say is like a lot of things could be solved if we would just talk to each other. Um, maybe not in this instance. Those two young men are very aggro, but the instance that I think about when I think about like how communication could have actually solved a lot is that opening sequence I was talking oh, yeah. about. Yeah, like it's 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 clear that like if um uh Amadou and Jean had just talked to each other, even though Jean is clearly an asshole, um yes. they could have maybe cleared it up. And also like uh what was really, really sad and upsetting to me is if Maria, the Romanian immigrant, had spoken up and talked to Amadou like please stop like yeah because she didn't really want any of that it seems it seems like it just made her life worse him trying to step in and be chivalrous just hurt people it, it just hurt her it didn't help her at all yeah like he's frustrated Amadou is frustrated with his situation at home which leads to him taking it out on Jean who has disrespected you know somebody who Amadou identifies with an immigrant and while Amadou is not an immigrant he is seen as a lower class of citizen in France he's a black Frenchman um and so he's he thinks he's helping maria but if maria was able to communicate with him in that instance uh you know she would have been able to tell him like you're causing me actually undue stress and for our listeners who have not seen the film this is probably so what confusing. happens after this altercation <laughs> yeah, i'm sure it's, I'm sure it's just you're like is wildly confusing yeah but amadou standing up for the honor of this houseless woman maria results in her deportation back to her home nation mm -hmm. um which I found there are so many things in this film that I think are so timely and still resonate profoundly over 20 years later. But that's the thing that resonated the most profoundly with me is like over the past three years, we've seen this happen more and more is where uh, well-intentioned allies think they're doing the right thing and just mm -hmm. end up causing more harm um, yeah. than if they had, you know, stayed out of it. Which, you know, now I'm kind of rambling and going off in a million different directions, but this is like what I think I keep on coming back to is like the sequence with Juliette Binoche where she doesn't say anything, the sequence with Maria where she doesn't say anything. It's these instances where the lack of communication results in the harm of, in these cases, the woman who didn't speak up. And society has almost conditioned this type of person, i.e. a woman to like, you sh you don't speak up you should not speak up it is not your place to speak up um and that's just that's just like one of the one of the things that i've like been thinking about the <laughs> human beings communicating with each other is just such a nebulous topic to start with and he's touching on so many different aspects of it through the film i also think that like and julia Binoche's character being an actress is also really rooted in to communication connectivity because you know actors as jobs are to communicate the human condition through art you know what I mean like I you know I'm a Meisner girly that's the kind of acting I was trained on and and what Meisner says is that acting is living truthfully under imaginary circumstances we take the circumstances of others and we try to infuse truth into those stories and I feel like acting mm -hmm. and showing her acting in these multiple scenes i feel like um uh, that, that just like i feel like infuses i don't know if there's like a particular scene that necessarily enhances it i mean i think they all are tied to that theme but i think her specifically as a as a being an actress is such a communicative profession where you're trying to actively communicate yeah the world and 
the human condition and life and truth and reality through art. Same with photography, with with George being a photographer. And there's that great comment that reminded me of something Haneke says in the intro, where when they're at dinner with the friends after he's back, they're kind of giving him shit. Like one of the women is is like, well, you can't portray the actual famine those children feel through a photograph Mm -hmm. so and then that Mm -hmm. kind of i think he's already dealing with some ptsd from being in the war grounds from those you know horrific photos we saw that he took he was seeing atrocities that no people should see and i think he's dealing with some ptsd from that which i think also leads to the lack of communication and ability he has to express himself in the grocery store uh, in a way that's mm-hmm. appropriate to to Anne, that it is helpful to Anne. But I think that's why he goes on this sort of, we don't really get a lot of closure on him other than like once his brother runs away, it's like, I guess that's it. But he goes on this kind of mm-hmm. journey of trying to maybe try to capture more truthful photographs. Um, and it kind of reminded me of, um, yeah, the opening, I, I watched that little kind of intro from Haneke and I loved how he was talking about um, film and he was saying how all of his films are rooted in the idea of what is reality uh and he says cinema tries to be reality but cinema is not reality because there was never a way to fully convey the true complexities of reality so you must make choices you are giving people a specific view of reality through film and that's what he likes to play with uh and that reminded me of yeah of acting of filmmaking of photography you can't ever really portray the entire breadth of complexity and of human complexity through art but you could give slices you can give ideas you can give strokes of what these feelings are and I don't know that I those kinds of themes of artistry I think were also present and they seem very relevant to Haneke as a director as well who he is a person who is trying to communicate to us as we're watching this film you know Um, and so there's just these meta layers I guess of him as a filmmaker that are infused into the film alongside those themes of communication and just on the on the note of acting that scene where it trick it doesn't really trick you but it's a scene you know all of her scenes mm-hmm. are kind of yes. pulled out like the first one mm-hmm. you can tell she's filming it the second one we actively see the film crew filming her and then the third one mm-hmm. we just cut and it's just like a new world and he kind of tricks mm-hmm. you um i was moved to tears during that scene because mm-hmm. the the visceral fear of seeing your child almost dying the way Julia Binoche played that was so like, I use the word visceral a lot in this film, but like I felt that pain in my stomach and it like, it welled tears in my eyes because her evocation of that feeling was so palpable to me as a viewer. Uh, mm-hmm. I just was like, like that to me is like the epitome of this idea of acting as a form of communication. Yeah. I mean, this is like the detail oriented and uh, like this just goes to show like the kind of detail oriented and like really didactic filmmaker that Haneke is. But in the interview with him on the channel, he talks about how it's really funny. He seems like such a jovial and kind man. <laughs> he does seem very and chill. He makes these, yeah. He seems just so sweet and earnest and he makes these very, um, you know, tough films. But uh <laughs> He talks about how, well, the audience, they should know that this is not the film because I'm cutting and it's a completely different uh, style of filmmaking. I'm using zooms. And I was it like, it is very he's different. Like, but yeah. nobody, yeah, but he's like, nobody ever notices. And, you know, I'll cop. I also didn't notice. And I was like really in it 
uh, with like the scene. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, uh, what I was like, what I think is really interesting about that, that was, it highlights this, the, like the vignettiness of like the rest of the film, mm-hmm. um, and how you talk about, say that quote again about what acting. Oh, living is. truthfully under imaginary circumstances. Yeah. Uh, I think Hanukkah is like really after that on it. Like, I don't know if like you always come to that when you're thinking deeply about like uh, performances that you really love or if Hanukkah really inspired that you to go to that thought again. But uh, there's Stanford Meisner is, was a very famous acting teacher. And I feel like when you go to acting school, there's different methods. There's like Stanislavski's mm-hmm. method and Chekhov. And there's like a lot of different acting methods and Meisner is just one of them. And uh, yeah, that was just like his thing. And when I went to acting school, that was the predominant form of acting that we we worked with and the, the kind of um, teachings that come around Stanford Meisner, but that's like the catchphrase of Meisner acting. Um, and whenever I'm acting or whenever I see acting, that's like what I think of, I guess it's about, yeah. Cause it was this just way of getting it. It's a very simplified way of just saying like, no matter what circumstances, even if they're far outside of your own life, right. You have to find the truth in them. You have to find a, a piece of yourself that you can pull into this to find that truth within the piece that you're working yeah. on. Yeah. I just, I I've seen three Hanukkah films at this point and that quote about that you've given now, like, you know, like it's, you know, living truthfully under imaginary circumstances uh, resonates so profoundly with me because whether or not he's uh, creating a, you know, character study of a sadomasochistic piano teacher or he's, you know, deconstructing the narrative format of, violence laden thrillers in American cinema or he's doing this like you know tackling communication and immigration issues in Europe he's trying to put you so squarely in reality um even though he's the master of the circumstance um and furthermore I think I'm like resonating so much with that because I resonate with Hanukkah films so profoundly I'm learning Mm. like I feel like he creates a mood and an aesthetic that just captures kind of how I feel um, living in the modern world mm-hmm. that I don't think is matched by anyone in such that I don't think is matched by anyone in quite such a way as um, Antonioni mm-hmm. because they're both making films about discontentment and <laughs> modern life. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's weird that somebody like Haneke is, I don't know, so profoundly identifiable with, at least from my point of view. Um, But like, this doesn't even go to speak to like a thematic analysis or anything, or even like a performance review. I just find the mood and the feeling uh, of his films very evocative of my own feelings. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that makes sense. No, I think so. And I agree with the idea that this, it feels like a very relevant piece of art. Like it doesn't, a lot of the thematic elements of it feel so I think even more relevant as I said earlier like in the age of internet and that we've we've lost it's weird like the internet was created to connect human beings all across the world and yet I do think that it has like siphoned so much of us away that like I I think that like the internet has lost that original that original like it, it was built to connect and i just don't think it's doing that anymore it does in a sense but not always in the best ways 
that makes sense. Like I'm very, <laughs> I've gotten very, um, just exhausted from the internet and the feelings it provokes in me and the ways it makes me feel if I just like get on Twitter for five minutes and I immediately am just like so sad and overwhelmed. Um, and so I feel like if anything, these themes of communication are even more relevant and yeah, the key, again, I was just like surprised by how much I dug this movie, like instantly, even just from a filmmaking standpoint, I love the lack of cuts and the lack or the very carefully placed cuts so that you really notice them when they're there. And that initial scene is just like a single take. I mean, going all the way down the street and then back again, I was just like, that is so brilliant. And you feel like you're a bystander on the street, which I think is the feeling that he wants you to feel you know what I mean you are a silent bystander just like all the other people you're seeing on screen and uh yeah so like even from a filmmaking standpoint I agree like the tone that he's able to strike is so provocative and interesting and hypnotic and it really makes you just kind of fall into this movie and even though I am intimidated by his other movies I'm like damn I kind of do want to watch them now because like it is a really it has a really great mastery of tone in a way that is really fascinating it was really cool to see in this movie yeah i mean i think i think his tone of of, if anything else is consistent across all three that i've seen i think that he's obviously a technical master Mm -hmm. of the form um one thing that i love that i've heard hanukkah say is um when he's directing whether it's on film or on stage he rarely unless it's the scene that you just mentioned the one very long tracking Mm -hmm, shot mm -hmm. um he rarely actually watches his actors act. He listens to them. Hmm. He's he's searching for that tone and that intonation and the authenticity of it because he can he knows that he if he's not watching it and he's just hearing you, he 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 can see it all. Um and I think like that is a very simple and very specific thing that he does as a filmmaker that I think translates very broadly to the overall um aesthetic and mood and just like general like wow factor that his films have on me Mm. um they're very enveloping in the same way that like a wes anderson film is very enveloping they're very distinctive like as soon as a hanukkah film is off you know what you're in store for uh it's not going to be mystical or magical but it's going to be transportative and almost lucid like they 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 don't they don't feel dreamlike. I'm not saying like this is lynching in any way, but like they are. It's almost it's very surreal to inhabit a world that feels very closely to like how I perceive reality. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just yeah. I have such a I have such a fondness for him, um, especially after watching Code Unknown because it is it's definitely the most uh, like uh, easy of his movies. Yeah. I think. Um, but for all the for all the hype of how um, aggressive or uh, disturbing funny games and the piano teacher are, he's very smart as to how he approaches those topics. They are never gratuitous and they're never uh, triggering in a way, you know, that would not be already expected going into those films generally knowing what they are. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited for you to see them too. Um, There's one last thing that, uh, I'm, I'm like scouring my notes. I'm over here like scrolling over and over again, making sure I talk about everything. And there's one thing that like I cannot find on the internet. You may not have the answer to, but I'm putting out in the world on a podcast in case anyone speaks French sign language. What is the kid saying at the oh. end? I cannot find anyone on the internet who knows um, because a lot of ASL 
people are like, well, I can't translate this because it's French sign language. And then no one that speaks French sign language is on these forums I've been scouring, trying to see, um, which again, kind of leaves you on that note of that incommunicability, right? Like we as the viewers, by not having that sign language captioned without speaking French sign language, a large portion of the audience does not know what this child is saying at the very end. We're bookending right with the, with the class of deaf children. Uh, and I'm just curious if you were able to find an answer on that, or if you even have an idea of what the kid is saying, because I truly could not uh, figure it out. Yeah, no, um, I'm not sure. I mean, I know, I know, I do know Hanake was like, you know, intentionally wanting you to walk out of the film wondering and not knowing what that child had said. Yes. Um, my inclination was that it had something to do with the very beginning is that it was a coda to that um and that it tied back to the young girl um playing charades at the beginning i almost actually thought that it was part of the exact same game that no time had elapsed for that that it was literally just being tacked on from the very beginning Mm. these are just my thematic notions of what it is not necessarily what it meant um yeah it left my it left me scratching my head. I'm I'm not sure to be honest with you, but I know that was Hanukkah's complete intention is like, I think he knew this was going to be for an international audience and that you were not really going to have the resources to find it out. And he also made this in a time where there wasn't uh, as much information out on the internet as there is today. But no, I, I've got to be honest, Mackenzie, I'm not quite sure. Well, I'm so curious. And I don't know if I really honestly don't think any of our listeners speak French sign language, but if anybody does or is a better internet sleuth than me, I would love to know because I'm just curious. <laughs> um, but I do agree that it was a hundred percent probably his intention. I a thousand percent agree with that, that like, yeah. He, that's part of it. That's part of it. Right. Like I, I totally get its presence, but I'm a nosy little bitch and I want to know what the kid said. <laughs> um, well, Mackenzie, uh, I hope somebody writes in and will <laughs> let people know where they can write in in a second. But do you have any final thoughts and or a star rating for Code Unknown you know, before we move on? You know, I just like, I I don't know if I have any final thoughts. I feel like I've talked my uh, your ear off a bit about this. I just found it to be a really fascinating movie that I feel like I could chew on for a long time. I liked it way more than I thought I was going to. Uh, I've been teetering because I generally only save five stars for like movies that are like really rooted in my soul. Um, but I really liked it. I think I'm a four and a half or five for this because I think this might be my favorite first watch so far of our pod. Um, nice. like I really yes. think out of all the first watches I've had on the podcast, I think this is the one that's hit me the best. I liked it way more than I thought it would. I loved the themes. I loved the performances. I loved the storytelling, the implicate the personal implications it sort of created within me of that self-reflection. I feel like Vagabond also had that element of like, it caused me to reflect on my own experiences and the way I also view and treat other people that I pass on the street. Um, and so, yeah, I love, I really, really loved it. I like really couldn't believe how much I really dug this movie. Uh, what are your final thoughts? Do you have a rating for us as well? Yeah. Um, very similar to you. Um, you know, I, as I stated up front, very knew very little about this film going into it and had very different expectations than what I got. And I found myself just really locked in with it from the get go. And, you know, I don't always, you know, reserve my very high ratings for things that like touch the deepest corners of my soul but as long as something can like get me thinking and questioning and uh probing the darker corners of my soul i guess um 
I will think of it very highly. And Haneke doesn't uh, have any shortage of getting me to uh, probe the darker corners of my soul. So I'm sitting at a nice five stars for this as well. Nice. Um, I know you're like four and a half, five, but yeah, no, I also was just like bewildered at how much I dug it. I really dig The Piano Teacher. You know, I've talked about that on this podcast before. That's a very different film, but as I've kind of like been alluding to it, it feels very similar, just in general, overall vibe. Um, well, you did your, that's a five stars for me. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, you did your Cooper grading earlier. If you, in those are three movies, if you could rank the uh, three movies you've watched by Hanukkah, where would you put uh, code unknown? Well, they're all five stars. Um, Funny games is, you know, five stars too. Uh, it'd be funny games. This, I code unknown and then the piano teacher is still reigning supreme. Um, <laughs> that is a bill who pair performance is just uh, transcendent. And oh, wow. I, I'm not the biggest fan of hyperlink cinema in general. Mm. That doesn't, that's, that's, that's a little bit reductive to say, even because hyperlink cinema can be so many things. Um, but, you know, I think just the focus on the Isabel Huppert character and the piano teacher is like really what I love about that film. It's this character study of a very, very specific type of person. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, I really loved Code Unknown. I really hope we get some people to watch it. Mm -hmm. And I would love to hear what our listeners thought of it. Um, they can always write in at thecriterionconnection at gmail.com. We don't have any emails or voicemails today, Mackenzie, sadly. But if you out there listening want to tell us what you thought of Code Unknown, Francis Ha, Vagabond, or what we're covering next week, you can write in or send us your voicemail, 90 seconds or shorter, please, to thecriterionconnection at gmail.com. But Mackenzie, speaking of mm -hmm. what we are watching next week, we've been alluding to it a little bit. Please let the fine folks know out there what we are pairing with Coda Known. Yes, I mentioned it a bit earlier, but you know we plan these we plan these double features out a little bit ahead of time. So sometimes I'm trying to pick a movie before I've even watched the first movie, and Coda Known was very intimidating to me, and I was trying to wrap my brain over how the hell do I connect to this movie I've never seen before. Um, while also, you know, preserving the integrity of the show and trying to find something that pairs well. So when I found out that Code Unknown was a hyperlink film, I was like, okay, maybe that's where I start. We we haven't done any hyperlink films. Maybe we do a double feature of hyperlink. So that's the direction I went into was I was looking for other films in the collection that have this hyperlink ability, this hyperlink style, which is basically, you know, many different stories, different characters that are all intersected through generally like a, a singular event or and they kind of come and go through each other's lives you know you know the type we just watched one so i decided to knock out a biggie i was going through a bunch of different films and i thought you know something about me that is a shameful spot for me is i have never seen <laughs> a spike lee joint so we're tackling one of the probably one of the greatest filmmakers ever to a lot of people <laughs> With spine number 97, the iconic, I mean truly iconic, Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee from 1989. Letterboxd says, it's the hottest day of the summer. You can do nothing, you can do something, or you can dot dot dot. 
do the right thing. Salvatore Sal Fragioni is the Italian owner of a pizzeria in Brooklyn. A neighborhood local bugging out becomes upset when he sees that the pizzeria's wall of fame exhibits only Italian actors. Bugging out believes a pizzeria in a black neighborhood should showcase black actors, but Sal disagrees. The wall becomes a symbol of racism and hate to bugging out and the other people in the neighborhood and tensions rise. As I read that, that was I did not know that's what the movie was about. So no, I am, no, yeah, really? I am. So, like I, it is such a place of shame that I've never seen a Spike Lee movie. This is like the biggest Spike Lee movie. It's mm-hmm. it's iconic. I am so excited to yeah. watch this. Uh, and I think after we watched Code Unknown, you pointed out to me, and I agree. Um, I think that there will be much more connective tissue other than hyperlink cinema bringing us from Code Unknown to this because there was obviously a lot of really interesting stuff about racial tensions in Code Unknown that I think it's definitely going to carry over to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very highly rated amongst our friends. Um, and as soon as Code Unknown started, the little I know about do the right thing started to like kind of like creep into my mind. I was like, oh, I think this might work out really nicely for us because Mackenzie, I also have not seen <gasps> do the right Whoa. thing admittedly. Uh, so it's going to be a first watch for both of us. I'm super excited. Early performances from a lot of people that you and I both like. John Turturro, uh, Samuel Jackson. Danny Aiello, as uh, I presume the racist pizzeria owner, yeah. who I like from and Moonstruck, Kurt, yes. a future episode we will do one day. He's very mm-hmm. silly in that. Giancarlo Esposito, yes. who um, also rips, and Rosie yes. Perez, who is amazing. She's great in um, uh, Birds of Prey. Okay, she's so good in Birds of Prey. It's kind of stupid, but she's also good in like literally everything she does. But yeah. Yeah, she's amazing. And everybody's honestly really good in Birds of Prey. I think that's like probably one of the best superhero movies ever Birds made. of Prey rips. Everyone needs to put respect yeah. on Birds of Prey's name and Kathy Yan's name. I am tired of the disrespect on Birds of Prey. Kathy Yan's an amazing filmmaker. Her first film, Dead Pigs, is phenomenal um birds of prey was the yeah, last no. movie i saw before the shutdown in 2020 <laughs> oh how it was the last movie i wanted to go see but i didn't it was probably the one of the first movies i watched in lockdown because it was one of the first movies on vod on. after that uh, yeah 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 it was it's a big 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 shame that that happened at the beginning of the pandemic <laughs> because that deserved more love praise money all the things yes well you know I wish we could talk about Birds of Prey next week, but I'm also very excited that we're talking about Do the Right yes. Thing. Um, anyway, uh, Mackenzie, um, until then. See you next time on the Criterion Connection. Criterion Connection.